Good evening. The NHS is the envy of the world, so Boris Johnson tells us, and it's a narrative that's been put about actually for a very long time. Indeed, I've met people who genuinely think that we're the only country in the world that has a public health system. Well, of course, that's just not true. But criticism, oh, no, no, no. You can't criticise the NHS at all. If you do, you're accused of being nasty to all those doctors and nurses that work so hard. But I said on the first show I did hear on GB News last July, I said on my first show uh, that actually we need to be a little bit more honest about all this, and I felt that quite a big change in public opinion was coming. Now, I think the truth is the pandemic has really hastened that change because I bet every one of you watching and listening to this programme has a good story about the NHS and a not-so-good story about the NHS. We know that when it comes to emergencies, they are brilliant. And I can tell you that from first-hand experience. Uh, but I can also tell you from first-hand experience that when it comes to diagnostics, uh, they can be poor. Uh, and at times, frankly, the NHS can be terrible. Now, I know there's a rapidly rising population. I know there are all sorts of reasons why it is difficult. I know the, de the demands of patients get bigger and bigger and bigger. But this loss of confidence in the way the NHS works is certainly shown through how people feel about their GPs. The GP used to be just about the most local, trusted member of the community. People believed in their GPs. Uh, now it can be very difficult to even get to meet a GP face-to-face -face and to get an appointment in many parts of this country can be a week, two weeks or perhaps even more. Well, in the end, the chickens had to come home to roost. And a British Social Attitude survey now shows that just 38% are satisfied with their GP services. And yet, how do we hold them accountable? How do we hold GPs to account? How do we hold the NHS to account? It doesn't seem to be possible. And the story coming out overnight, the report into Shrewsbury and Telford Hospital NHS Trust, where 300 babies died or were severely brain damaged. Even that, you may say to me, ah, oh, well, Nigel, at least there is some accountability, at least the truth has been told. Well, remember, these flaws, these failures, were taking place over a 20-year period. And the review itself took five years to conduct. That is not, in my book, accountability in any way at all. So I'm asking you, do you agree with me? Do you think that the NHS should be held to account? Let me know your views. Farage at gbnews.uk. Maybe you're one of those who thinks, no, it is a national treasure and we shouldn't criticise it. I sense a big change in opinion is coming. Well, joining me now to talk about this is Nick Stokes, whose wife died nearly a year ago due to secondary breast cancer. Uh, Nick, also a former NHS Trust chair, so someone that knows the National Health Service from the inside. Uh, and Nick joins me now. Good evening, Nick. Good evening. Are you shocked by the Ockenden report into what happened at Shrewsbury and Telford? I'm, to be honest, I'm not at all shocked by many of the reports that are now coming out. And indeed, the, the research you, you quoted, I think the, the drop in, uh, in interest, you know, in people's views about GPs uh, is dramatic. I mean, it's something like halved from pre-COVID uh, and the yeah. pre-pandemic. 
And it's not surprising because we went through this situation that the NHS adopted and GPs adopted what they called a total triage or otherwise known as telemedicine, which essentially meant that instead of seeing patients, they said, no, no, we'll just rely on reception staff to determine whether or not we should speak to you or not. And then we rely on telephone calls and we rely on videos and so on. And in the case of my wife, that was a complete disaster and led to her death. Nick, I've had people, I've had GPs on this show argue with me uh, that actually an online, a Zoom consultation and diagnosis actually suits many patients um, and that it leads to few errors. Just share, if you would, briefly with me, Nick, the experience with your wife. Yes, certainly. I mean, she was 69. She was a very active ex-PE teacher, um, you know, played golf three times a week and so on. Um, and during, and she had breast cancer in the past, uh, back in 2006, and had a mastectomy, um, but had recovered brilliantly from that. Um, she was extremely in good health. Um, but during the tw summer of 2020, she started getting pains in her leg um, and in her hip, which by September we were trying to get to see a GP and at that point we encountered telemedicine which meant essentially that we had to queue for many minutes to try and even get through on the phone in the first place. Eventually you might then say well I'll get a GP to ring you and they rang her and said oh well you know your age what do you expect you've got arthritis you know go and see a physio um, and self you know self-diagnose yourself to a physio well, which was equally useless of course, physios weren't seeing patients either, uh, not in the NHS anyway, so they just sent exercises and they were just as, uh, as feeble. I mean, we did then try private physio who would see patients, um, and they actually recommended that we need to go back to our GP and ask for an X-ray or a scan. Yeah. But even after that, the practice still insisted that that wasn't necessary, they wouldn't see her, um, and her condition worsened to the point she could no longer walk, can no longer drive a car uh, and so on um, in January. So that in January 20, you know, a year ago, just over a year ago, um, I eventually literally went to the surgery to demand painkillers and wouldn't leave until I got an appointment with a GP. Um, and when he saw, of course, uh, we went into treat diagnosis mode very quickly. They discovered you had very high calcium in the blood, rushed to hospital, major operations to try and repair the bone, the damage to her bones, but she was too weak to really fight the cancer and she died within three months. And what really saddened me more than anything uh, was two things. One, during that period of time, she was very rarely at home and I couldn't see her in hospital uh, because obviously of COVID, so she was yeah. stuck on her own. And I hate to think what was going through her mind in the last weeks. Um, and, and secondly, after she died, the, the um, cancer specialist said to me, it was such a shame, we, if we'd seen her earlier, um, we could have treated her while she was strong oh. enough. And although the cancer wasn't um, <clears throat> curable, it was controllable. Um, but obviously it spread eventually to the brain, caused damage, you know, damage to her thinking and hearing, um, and, and she died in April a year ago. In some ways, Nick, the saddest part of your story, uh, and you explaining it to us here on GB News, is that you're far from on your own. Uh, there are so many of these stories that we're going to hear over the course of the next couple of years. 
But as somebody who has chaired an NHS trust, you know, the NHS is a publicly owned organisation and set up uh, for all the best of reasons, believed and trusted throughout generations, but now open to question. And as you say, support for GPs and other parts of a service is falling quickly. But should it be held accountable? Because I can't see any way that it is accountable. I mean, what can you do? What can you do? Given, given that you know, given that you know, because you were told by the specialist uh, that if your wife had been seen, you know, treatment could have taken place. How do we hold individuals or the organisation to account without resorting to law? Uh, it's a very difficult question. I mean, we, we actually saw another practice uh, GP uh, when my wife was back home at one point, um, and he actually said to us, do, would you, do you want to put a, a formal protest, you know, complaint into the surgery? Now, at the time, my wife said, no, she didn't. But what she wanted to happen was that when reception staff got a phone call, if they looked at the, the record of the patient and found that that patient, for example, had cancer in the past or had heart problems and so on, there wasn't a question about whether the, the GP should see them or not. Yeah. It should be an automatic process. And, and that's, a, unfortunately, the problem with the NHS, and in my experience, is it's, it's so hidebound by bureaucracy and by the way it operates that it, it can't see the wood for the trees. You know, I mean, just as a, a classic example, when COVID happened, and we all know so many COVID deaths occurred uh, in hospital as a result of people contacting yeah. COVID in hospital. In hospital. Um, actually, what should have happened was that, if I take an example, where a hospital trust took over the local private care hospital. Now, you'd think in that situation, they would have put all the COVID patients into one hospital and had the other hospital simply treating patient or the other patients. And as soon as anybody contacted COVID, they got eaten immediately transferred to the COVID hospital. But actually, that didn't happen. I mean, when I was visiting that particular private hospital uh, during the uh, lockdown, just after lockdown, um, my specialist there told me that uh, in that particular private hospital, the ground floor had been for non-COVID patients and the first floor was for COVID patients. And as he said to me, it's just plain daft. Who well, came I, up I, with that idea? Nick, Nick, <laughs> you, you, you illustrate... Exactly what was happening all over. You illustrate so much that is going wrong. Um, I'm very sorry uh, for your own situation. Thank you uh, for coming on here and bravely sharing that story with us. And thank you for joining us tonight on GB News. And the point there, folks, Pleasure. was there's a former chair of an NHS trust. And when I asked the question about accountability, he says it's very difficult. This is the problem. Now, Sajid Javid responded today in the House of Commons to the situation we learned overnight about Shrewsbury. One mother said that she felt like a lone voice in the wind. Bereaved families told the report that they were treated in a way that lacked sensitivity and empathy. And appallingly, in some cases, the Trust blamed these mothers for the trauma that they had been through. In the words of Donna Ockerden, the Trust failed to investigate, failed to learn and failed to improve. And the failures of care and compassion that are set out in this report have absolutely no place in the NHS. To all the families that have suffered so greatly, I am sorry. 
The report clearly shows that you were failed by a service that was there to help you and your loved ones to bring life into this world. Well, that's all well and good, but how do we stop this from happening again? Well, joining me now to discuss this is Judy Ledger, CEO and founder of Baby Lifeline. Judy, lots of apologies, lots of mayor culpas coming from ministers, the government. Um, yeah. How do we prevent something like this from happening again? Well, I think listening to Nick, I mean, his story, very harrowing, and obviously somebody that has a wealth of knowledge within the NHS. I'm actually an ex-nurse um, and I lost three babies in tragic circumstances. So I've sort of had seen both sides. I've also devoted my life really to improving maternity services. I have to agree that things have changed, some for the be better, some for the worse. I think there is a huge amount of bureaucracy. It doesn't help the health professionals themselves. I think in the Shrewsbury and Telford case, it's shocking. We had a clue, well, we knew what was coming over the five years, but uh, to see it today, it really is enormous. You know, the enormity of the whole thing is quite shocking. And the culture has to change. Um, and I understand were... what was going on there. I understand there was a very anti-Caesarean section culture going on there, which perhaps was to blame for many of these problems. Yeah, financial targets, which is, you know, we know we, we heard that um, all about financial targets, yeah. which should not be the case. I think that the, the NHS has got huge pressures. It's grown. It's fragmented in many ways. We find that trusts vary. Uh, some are absolutely fantastic. They're slick. We can work with them. Others have these issues. I have to say that most of the health professionals we work with are tremendous, and I feel so sorry for them. But I feel very sorry for these women and families that have suffered and had yeah. to fight so hard for years to get and yet, anywhere. And yet, Judy, it's taken five years from start to finish mm. for this report to be issued. And other than looking back at past errors, has anybody actually been mm. held to account? I think that's uh, Donna was saying that that is she, she's been quite robust in this report. I'm glad. I'm I'm happy to say. Yeah. I think that's the next step. She ha was asked that question today. That is the next step. Um, well, I think actions rather than recommendations. That's yeah. what I welcome. Rather than saying, "Oh well, we recommend this and nothing's done about it." That's well, what's happened in the past. As you follow this as closely as you do and care about it as much as you do, I want you to come back in a few weeks or months and tell us, has anything actually happened? Please, Judy, thank you very we much indeed. We are working with the trust. We are training them, so, yeah, I will. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Now, Louise Barnett, the Chief Executive of the Shrewsbury and Telford Hospital NHS Trust, said today's report is deeply distressing and we offer our wholehearted apologies for the pain and distress caused by our failings as a trust. We have a duty to ensure that the care we provide is safe, effective, high quality and delivered always with the needs and choices of women and families at its heart. We owe it to those families we failed and those we care for today and in the future to continue to make improvements. Well, that doesn't sound to me like they've been really held to account. In a moment, we will talk about red diesel and the impact it's going to have on house building, road building and ultimately on your pocket too.
As confidence in the NHS falls, should it be held accountable? Your reactions. Christine says, seriously need to review midwifery training. James says, what is needed is personal responsibility in the public sector. People make decisions, not institutions. And when their decisions lead to deaths, as we've seen in social services and the NHS, those individuals should be held to account, just as they would be in the private sector. I think many will agree with that. Another viewer says, how? Can you fire the NHS? Well, no, it, that's the problem. It, there is this lack of accountability that is, I think, at the heart of the problem. Mike says, people need to be held to account. Agreed. Robbie says, the NHS needs total reset, but no politician has the guts to do it. I think that's probably right. But we can stand there and clap, and we can pretend that everything is absolutely tickety-boo. It isn't. Now, the 1st of April looms, and I wonder, who are the April Fools going to be? Well, I'll tell you who they're going to be. They're going to be people working in the commercial world who have been buying red diesel. What's red diesel, you ask? Well, red diesel is diesel that has a much lower duty on it. Typically, diesel at the pumps has 58p of tax levied on it. Red diesel has about 11p levied on it. Now, there are exemptions, and this red diesel, this cheaper, this less highly taxed diesel, uh, will still be available to most of the maritime industry, still be available to most of the farming industry. But in the worlds of construction and building, it will no longer be available. What does all this mean, and how in the end will it impact you? Well, I'm joined by Ben Griffiths, a plant hire owner, and somebody who's worked in the industry for 31 years. Ben, good evening. Hello, Nigel. Nice to talk to you. Good, very good to see you here. And, Thank I you. mean, you're headed for a massive price hike, aren't you, at the end of this week? We, yes, we are, yes. Yeah, most definitely. Not good at all. And tell me, you know, for you running a business, what does it mean for you in terms of pounds, shillings and pence? Well, it's all the capital, extra money that we're going to have to find and outlay, you know, to buy the white diesel at the full duty price. Yep. And the, the security implications of looking after it, you know, fuel bowsers on site, God knows what. You know, it's going to be an awful, very challenging time for us, definitely. Um, and, and so you're you involved, know, your company's involved primarily in the construction business, yeah? Yes, yeah. A agricultural plant hire and working for small builders and local companies, basically. So you obviously... Um, you obviously didn't come within the agricultural exemption. Well, if you read Excise 75, it says there's no allowance, you know, for farm work, building work on farms. You know, they're sort of saying on that that it all has to be white diesel. And it's a huge outlay for us guys that are doing the work to find all the extra money to buy the fuel and then wait to get it back, etc. And to be honest with you, I don't really understand why, because there is no gain. Environmentally, it makes no difference. You know, red diesel is the same as white diesel, yeah. only that it has yeah. a dye in it. Yeah, as you say, so, there is... But, I mean, as with so many things I criticise, with government's so-called environmental and green tax policy, there is actually no environmental gain. But let's just take it down the line, shall we? You know, you've, you've explained mm -hmm. your difficulties with this. So I'm a local builder, and I come to you, yeah. Ben Griffiths, because I need to hire, you know, gear, kit, yeah. uh, uh, to construct... Yeah. Um, and that means that as a builder, my costs too go up. So does this ultimately mean yeah. 
Does well, this ultimately mean that new build houses yeah. become more expensive? Well, absolutely, everything's going to go up. So even though we had a five pence a litre drop on the pumps, I mean, it's hidden behind all this red diesel ban, is it not? Well... I mean, the uh, money that they're going to gain from <laughs> making us all buy white diesel is going to soon eradicate that five pence drop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yet, I don't know about you, Ben, but I know the construction industry, people in your uh, position, I know the road builders, I know all of these yeah. people are facing massively increased costs, and yet there's been barely a, yeah. barely a murmur bad. about it in the media, has there? Nothing. No. No. It's and that's very... because... That's because you're not involved in a trendy and what it seemed to be environmentally friendly industry. Ben Griffiths. Westminster thinks you're a bad dude. That's what it is. Well, Ben, look, thank you for coming on and sharing your story with us. And, and, and I was keen to do this because I just feel that this has not been discussed and it's going to hit everyone's pockets in the end. Thank you for coming on and for joining us. Now, today in Australia, a state funeral was held for Shane Warne. And Warne, really a remarkable personality. Uh, to begin with, I remember hearing in 1994 that a young leg spinner was coming on tour. I thought, leg spin? Leg spin disappeared decades ago. But no, young Shane Warne had sort of almost rediscovered the art of leg spin. And he came to England and the first ball he bowled. Let's have a look at the first ball that Shane Warne bowled in a test match in England. Poor Mike Gassing down the other end. And it's called the ball of the century because it pitches way outside leg stump. Looks like it's going massively down the leg side and then turns at the most remarkable angle. And that was, that, that was the introduction, really, of Shane Warne, the cricketing genius. Yes, of course, hailed as a hero in Australia, but hugely admired here too. In that 2005 Ashes series that was nip and tuck all the way through, you know, wherever, whenever Australia were up or down, Warren always tried 100%. He was pretty handy with the bat too. But he then made the transition from cricketing genius into sort of international celebrity. Um, and he finished up uh, spending much time, in fact, even engaged, I think, to Liz Hurley, uh, English supermodel, and it did appear for a bit that she kind of tamed Warney. But suddenly, it wasn't just the back pages that Warne was on. He was filling the gossip columns um, and, and somebody that everybody knew, whether they were sports fans or not. Now, he was, of course, uh, a bit of a bad lad too, in many ways. I mean, we're all flawed, aren't we? But just a remarkable sportsman, a very well-known celebrity, Clearly, an all-round very nice guy who wished nobody any harm at all. One of those figures that was a star in this country, as well as his own, native Australia, and perhaps it was really very nice of the Australian government to actually today give him a full, big state funeral. Uh, not something that happens very often in Australia, uh, but it was done today in real style. Uh, you don't get many sportsmen uh, that make as much of an impact on such a wide, broad range of people as Shane Warne managed to do in his life. Now, talking of very well-known people, there's a chap in America. Yup, indeed, he's the 46th president of America. It is Joe Biden. His poll ratings have now fallen 
uh, to 34%, which is astonishingly low, much lower uh, than Trump got, even through some of his difficult times as president. But it's much worse than that. He is making mistakes that are really rather dangerous. Uh, he's saying things that he's not supposed to be saying, saying things that he's not agreed with his staff that he would say. The first mistake, I suppose, was the unilateral withdrawal from Afghanistan and literally handling control of the country back to the Taliban, who we'd fought for 20 years, and doing so without consultation with his closest allies, including us. But last week, when he visited Poland, we saw him with the 82nd Airborne, saying to them, when you get to Ukraine, you know, you will see how bravely the Ukrainians fight. Well, I mean, I didn't know American troops were going into Russia, and nor did the 82nd Airborne. He then, over the weekend, said, basically called for regime change. That's what he called for. Uh, within minutes, his own White House were denying that's what he meant. And he was caught earlier on this week. I mean, doing press interviews, uh, but literally having in his hand a piece of paper given to him by his staff, a sort of cheat sheet, how to answer this question. Now, it's pretty clear that he's not up to the job. Uh, it's pretty clear uh, that he's suffering from this awful, horrible disease that afflicts so many people of senility. And I'm just surprised that no one's yet talking about the 25th Amendment. Section 4 of the American 25th Amendment basically says that when a president of America is unfit for office, the vice president and a majority of the principal officers of the executive or a body such as Congress can remove him from office on the basis that he's incapable of holding down those duties. Now, this 25th Amendment, it was said many, many times, you know, let's move the 25th and get rid of Donald Trump. But it was never, ever done uh, because there was no real justification for it. And yet, I'm really surprised there aren't voices now in America calling for it. I think Biden's comments that he made last week are boxing Putin even deeper into a corner. And we have to find some way out so that we can get a peace agreement. Did Joe Biden take the world, perhaps potentially, a little bit closer to nuclear war last week? I think he did. Uh, did he know he was doing it? Is he in control of what he says? No. And I wouldn't be surprised if we don't begin to hear Republican voices calling for that 25th Amendment to be moved. Now, my real what the Farage moment here is, and I'm, I'm going to call it woke Disney, but try this for size. The general entertainment president for Disney, Carrie Burke, has called for 50% of characters and content to be from underrepresented groups. Ms. Burke announced the change at a company-wide Zoom call, vowing to increase representation of the LGBTQ plus community or from racial minorities. The Disney executive remarked that the changes reflected her personal life, saying, I'm here as the mother of two queer children. Actually, one transgender child and one pansexual child, and also as a leader. The campaign will be called Reimagine Tomorrow and pledges that by 2022, 50% of regular and recurring characters across Disney General Entertainment scripted content will come from underrepresented groups. Well, isn't that marvellous? That means they will be wholly overrepresented, which actually 
could be seen as an insult to anybody else that isn't now in that group. And, and what are we trying to say to children? Are we trying to say that the world is a very different place to what it actually is? I've absolutely no objection to minority groups having reasonable, sensible, proportionate representation. But to massively over-represent these groups and to show that as to children as being the way the world is, I think is completely and utterly wrong. I really do. Some more thoughts from you. One viewer says, the NHS should be held accountable. My father died due to a slew of administrative errors. Can we cut through the bureaucracy and bring back Matron? Dawn says, we should be getting better service for the amount of money that's thrown at it every year. They are not above criticism. Robert says, it's not the NHS body, it's the people who commit the malpractice. Most of the time, when punishing the NHS, it's the taxpayers who pay. Andy says, give the NHS a year to sort itself out and then be accountable. Well, we're going to find out more quickly than that, aren't we? Because we're going to find out uh, much more quickly what actually happens as a result of the Ockenden report into those dreadful practices up in Shrewsbury and Telford. Up next, it's going to be Talking Pints. I'll be joined by Johnny Gould. He's a sports fan. He's a broadcaster. I think he's worked for virtually every broadcaster in the country over many, many years. But he's also a bit of a political campaigner too. He'll be with me in just a moment. The GB News Tavern is open. I'm joined by broadcaster, sports fanatic and political campaigner, Johnny <laughs> Gould. Johnny, good to see you, Nigel. Good to see you. Now, Aston Villa. Mm. West Midlands man. Cheers, man. <laughs> was it football that got you into sport? Or was it all sport yeah. that always interested you? It was. Dad used to bring home the Express and Star and the Evening Mail every night. He used to tell me off every night, because I started from the back page. <laughs> and um, he basically said to me, uh, you've got to start reading the newspaper from the front, look at news and politics and current affairs. And I said, I, w I'm just, I just love sport. And he said, you'll never get a job out of that. You'll never earn any money from that. And he, <laughs> he always reminded me of that. Um, but it, was, it, it, it has been a great career. Uh, but I'm in very much now in news and current affairs. Yeah, I know, you've, I know that you've, you've, you've kind of moved on yeah. with it. But, but, you know, when it comes to being a sporting broadcaster, which yeah. is what you became, I mean, how does a young kid that likes football become a sporting broadcaster? Because it's like a... I mean, that's like a dream, yeah, isn't it? it is. I just went for it. I started doing hospital radio, like so yeah. many kids did. Um, I was told at hospital radio... It was a big hospital radio station, Birmingham Hospital Radio, 30 hospitals around uh, Birmingham and Solihull, and uh, they said, you, you can't be ambitious here. You've got to just... Devote your time to... Yeah, right. So I did that for a, a year or so at 18, and then I wrote to, you know, BBC Local Radio, yep. and I had approximately this voice as a kid. Got myself on The Breakfast Show, which was a bit of a shock. Had an out-of-body experience in my first bulletin. It was a surprise to me to be on air. And the rest is history. Um, one of the great things is, from the word go, when you work in sport, when you work in, in, in a studio with sport, you work with absolutely everybody, the greatest broadcasters. And um, Birmingham people, maybe people around the country will remember Tony Butler, who was the first guy I ever worked with. Yeah. It was this Brummie who used to go, on your bike, son. He was like, <laughs> when you know when 
accents became trendy in about 1975. <laughs> People stopped talking like that on air and started to talk with AOP accents wherever they were from. And, it, and there was a brummy thing going on with great broadcasters in Birmingham. It's but, interesting, but isn't it? One. I mean, sports broadcasters, sports commentators, uh, they build up a great rapport, don't they, with their public? A great rapport. It, it means a lot, you know. You have um, to. What are the sports you love best? Football is my thing. Yep. I love tennis as well. Yep. I used to love snooker. I'm not saying I fell, in, fell out of love with it, but it sort of became about whatever Ronnie O'Sullivan was doing and players now who... It's not as glamorous it was, but I think it, snooker benefited from the fact that football went down the chute in the 80s because of Heisel and Hillsborough, and yep. it was just so televisual. There was the bad one, Alex Higgins. There was the yeah. well-groomed one, everyone's yeah. favourite son, Steve Davis. There was the grinder. It had great personality. And, of course, there were fewer TV channels. Yeah. So... I think it was the, the final that Dennis Taylor won in the late oh, 80s. Wow. That was great. And I watched that. It was yeah. dramatic it stuff. Was brilliant. I was have 18 million people watching That's it. That's right. Like half 11, quarter to midnight right. on a Sunday night. Yeah. You know. It, sports coverage has changed, hasn't it? You know, I talked about a few channels. Now, I, you know, cricket's the game that I love to watch on television. Yeah. But I watch everything else as well, you know, and... Please see Palace winning 4-0 in the quarterfinals the go. other day. It's, it's you know, possible. You know, so I follow, yeah, so I come, <laughs> but I follow what... I, I, Johnny, I'll watch anything, yeah, sports-wise. Yeah. I mean, I enjoy pretty much anything. Mm. Um, but it was quite easy, wasn't it, really? Because you had, you know, BBC One, BBC Two, ITV, then Channel Four, did cricket for a bit. Did it very well, I thought, actually. Yes. Uh, now, I pay a Sky subscription because I want to watch overseas cricket, but then it just came to the recent tour and Sky weren't covering that, so then I have to subscribe to BT Sport. And now if I want to watch a particular boxing uh, match, uh, that'll be another 10 or 15 quid to watch that. Are they putting sport beyond the price range of lots of the fans? They are, and worse still, actually, they're creating a problem in terms of the next generation being captivated by it. Cricket's big problem was that they put it behind the Sky paywall What's happened to it? They've actually created a football concept. I think cricket has diminished because they've taken too much money from Sky. And the debate within cricket now is to try and put it more on terrestrial television. There was a bit of Channel 4 action, wasn't there, with repeats late at night, Mark yeah. Nicholas, etc. Yeah. They've got to do more of that. Well, that 2000... I just did a tribute to Shane Warne. Yes. You know, who not only was a genius cricketer, but also became a celeb yeah. uh, across the Aussie, UK... Yeah thing brilliantly um, but I remember 2005 that amazing Ashes series when it was nip and tuck all the way through you didn't know till the last day of the last test at the Oval who was going to win and that afternoon there were 8 million people you know they should have been at work most of them but, <laughs> yeah. but, there, were, but there were 8 million people watching cricket on terrestrial TV um, and now, because, as I say, you've got to have BT Sport and you've got to have Sky, uh, now the number wouldn't even be... Well, it'd probably, probably, be, probably be about 10% of that. Absolutely. So that is an issue, isn't it? At every level of every sport, there is the shop floor, the industry, should we say, and then there is the opportunity to mm. engage millions of more people. I think about that with the Champions League, which is arguably the greatest football in the world, which is behind a paywall. And then you've got the World Cup, which everyone gets involved yeah. in because yeah. it's on ITV and BBC. And however big football is, it needs that engagement. Crowds do go up, the popularity goes up. And the same goes for cricket. If they're going to have a five or six test series in the summer, yeah. one of them needs to be on ITV yeah. Yeah. or Some, Channel 4, somewhere, BBC. Can you explain to me 
how, and I was there at the final of the European Championships. Yes. I mean, shocking crowd. Yeah, you got in. I think we talked about it. And you had a ticket, didn't you? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah I, did, I didn't jump the barrier <laughs> or anything like that. Not you. Uh, but I saw a few that... Yeah, I bet you did. Uh, how is it that Italy beat England on penalties and win and are the champions and haven't lost a game of football for, I think it was 37 games... You know, looked to be an amazing sign. Yeah. A great goalkeeper, the lot. And now they get beaten by North Macedonia <laughs> yeah, yeah. and haven't qualified for the World Cup. How does that happen? Uh, or, I, or is that why we watch sport? Exactly. I would say it put North Macedonia on the map, but I just still don't know where it is. <laughs> um, but that's the amazing thing. Italy had qualified for every single World Cup until the last one, which also they failed. This is a real crisis for Italian football. But they are the maddest football nation. I mean, they won the World Cup in 2006. Yeah. And the bottom had fallen out of their uh, their um, Los Scudetto, their, their, their title, because there was uh, corruption and relegation of, uh, of their major clubs. And yet their national team came together and won it. And so they can be the European champion and lose World Cups either side. Uh, this is something that England never do. Italy are a tournament side. Mm, they were mighted to win the tournament at Euro 2020 yeah. uh, until we got to the final, where I had to be patriotic and tipping. But, <laughs> of course, Italy were inevitably going to win that one. Well, Johnny, you and I could talk about sports for hours, but I've got to move on. As you said, you know, you're doing more current affairs, yes. commentary yes. and podcasting and all the things you're doing. Um, and you had some pretty strong feelings about Jeremy Corbyn, didn't yes, you? Yes, I did. Um, it kind of launched... Um, the, the positive part of my podcast, it's called Johnny Gould's Jewish State. It's not a campaign for, for Israel per se, although I do support the state of Israel, of course. It's about the state of me and the state of, I think, the diaspora Jewish community. And I have guests on which challenge uh, all sorts of mainstream orthodoxy, which when you're Jewish is not very difficult to do because there are so many opinions and so many different ideas out there. And my guests do that so... Uh, the last guest I had on is a guy who tweets in Arabic exclusively. He has half a million followers. He's an Israeli. He was born in Beirut and Lebanon. Uh, and he challenges uh, the Arab populace with content about Israel, which they never get. Mm -hmm. They're lied to by their mainstream media. And this guy's called Eddie Cohen. I had Professor Alan Dershowitz on. Did you? Yeah. yeah. And I asked him about the BBC. And he said, I was the perfect guy to ask about the BBC. He accused them of advocacy, not journalism, because they're always about getting people on one side of the story and not the other. He said he was the perfect person to ask. And when they kind of shamed him and then they said, this is below our standards, even if you didn't know anything about Dershowitz, as I'm sure most people didn't mm. actually know the ins mm. and outs of the mm. case and the... Mm. Allegations which he says are completely yeah. false uh, against him. When the BBC say that uh, it, he fell below their standards, what does that mean? It is a slander of a kind. So I, I really go for good guests. Yeah. Uh, and it is an interesting listen, I'd like to think. And it's not no, just. He's Jewish got good people. guests, everybody, me, obviously. But. Oh. Uh... <laughs> you, you are on my, you're on my hit list. I shouldn't say that, should I? Corbyn, anti Semitism. Has Starmer beaten it off? Um, he is trying to be the man who isn't Corbyn. And he isn't an anti-Semite. And he is Sir Keir Starmer, not Jeremy Corbyn. However, he has not addressed... He has not addressed the simmering undercurrent of the broad church that is the Labour Party 
and anti-Semitism. My friend was walking his dog in the park in Dollis Hill today and came across Ken Livingstone mm -hmm. um, with a, a, a huge bunch of Palestinian flags, about one man and his dog there, 15 people, and they are talking about, well, they're, they're doing the Palestinianism. Mm. They're talking yeah, about... And that's become very trendy on the left, it, It's it? terrible. And, um, and by the way, while they're doing that, they are on the side of uh, murderous, a murderous campaign. 11 um, Israelis, and actually some of them aren't Israelis, some of them were Ukrainian nationals, uh, Jewish, non-Jewish, uh, a Christian policeman. They were, they were, they were murdered uh, along the street in assorted cities, one in Khadera in the north, in Bnei Brak. It's been happening. It's been yeah. going on. No, I know. I know. And Funny enough, it hasn't been that big a story here, really. No, it's getting, it's getting but bigger. But it's getting it's horrible. Israel yeah. has a new security <coughs> issue with yeah. AK-47s, Uzis, on the streets mm. of Israel. They dealt with suicide bombs, and, of course, they built a huge wall to defend themselves against um, Palestinians coming out of uh, the West Bank. Uh, Gaza with Iranian rockets flying into Israel. They dealt with with Iron Dome, of course, 91% yeah. of the rockets that I come mean, in. That doesn't mean that everything Israel does is quite right. No. That, you know, we're, not, we're not here to say that Israeli policy isn't to be criticised, but these people don't criticise Israel. They, what they want is the destruction of Israel. I know, the, the, that, that's the difference. Literally, the obliteration. That's right. Yeah. No, no, I get that. I get that. But, of course, campaigns for racial equality uh, we all want to support. And in the wake of the horrible murder of George Floyd, Black Lives Matter, this organisation, yeah. appeared and everybody was to bow down and take the knee. And, 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 and I, I knew Black Lives Matter from my time in America. Right. You know, I knew what they were. I knew it was hard left, Marxist, defund the police, etc. Um, and, you know, criticising it was, for me, a very difficult place. You were in a similar position on that, weren't you? I was. I was in the Supporters' Trust at Aston Villa. I spoke out about it. I spoke out about it on a personal basis, not representing the football club or, indeed, the Supporters' Trust. Yeah. And um, I was subjected to appalling racism, some of it from officers inside the football club. If it wasn't for the chief executive and the chief operations officer, it could have got very mucky in a Yorkshire cricket club kind of way. But I salute mm. uh, Christian Perslow and Paul Tyrrell, basically, for... Uh, for taking care of me. Uh, I'm just a fan now. That'll do me. I love Villa. There's nothing the haters can do about that. I am from <laughs> Birmingham. It is the top of my identity. You know, yeah. it's my club. But what happened? I mean, you know, Black Lives Matter was emblazoned all over Sky Sports. I mean, this yeah. organisation yeah. that no-one knew anything about, yeah. we were all supposed to support. They did, didn't... did we all go mad? Yeah, we didn't do our due diligence on them at all. And they finally... Richard Masters at the Premier League decided it was a good idea. Um, without doing the, the appropriate due diligence on it. Mm. And then suddenly, after the kerfuffle, Black Lives Matter became no room for racism. It became something yeah. slightly different. Yeah. However, that knee thing still happens. Yeah, I can't work it out. It's, it's, it's difficult to see. And now what they've done is put it into the hands of the players to decide when it's going to stop, When's it going to start? Yeah, I know. It's just... It, I mean, and, and now it does... I mean, when I go to games, it gets yeah. an applause because it's no room for racism. Yeah. But that knee thing, yeah. it's, it's yeah, a problem. It's a, simple, it's a it problem. Is. Johnny, we could talk for hours. Thank it's you for joining me. It's an absolute pleasure, Thank, Thank you very much Michael. indeed.
We've got time. We've got time. A couple of questions here on Barrage the Farage. Fraser asks, did Prince Harry let down his grandfather, Prince Philip, yesterday? Yes, yes, yes. What say you, Johnny? Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> Brian asks, did Will Smith do the right thing at the Oscars? Well, no, no. Violence in public is never justified, even if, on his wife's behalf, he felt severely insulted. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, of course, Chris Rock called him Richard on the way in, so he was inviting Richard Williams <laughs> to give him a slap, <laughs> not Will Smith. Oh, dear. What a mess. <laughs> Alan asks, ask Johnny if he thinks there is too much commentating during matches. Uh, well, yeah. So, Henry Longhurst used to sort of have pauses and silences on the open golf. Do commentators talk too much? They talk far too much. And, and, in, and in my day, <laughs> on radio, obviously, dead air was a yeah. crime. And on television, you had to let the pictures do, do the, the talking. talking. Yeah. I would like to think that Gary Lineker, at half-time during Luton versus Chelsea, wouldn't talk about Roman Abramovich and sanctioning and just concentrate on Chelsea <laughs> versus Luton. Well, I have if to If you say, don't mind. I think that Lineker's as much a political campaigner, really, isn't he?